The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Um, I'm going to talk um, about the ruin and restoration now of the Christian culture that I articulated in the first session. In case you hadn't noticed lately, we no longer live in a Christian culture. Now, only those of you with PhDs here will be able to understand that, I'm sure. Actually, if you have like two eyes and you're breathing, you can understand we no longer live in a Christian culture. The presence of the absence of Christian culture is everywhere. But you know, we can become so accustomed to not living in that culture that we scarcely can envision how we could live differently. How our forebears, in fact, did live differently. The West has embraced a new plausibility structure, that is, a society's intellectual architecture of assumptions so ingrained that they've become routine, uh, so deep that anything conflicting with them seems not so much uh, wrong and immoral as bizarre and unthinkable. Who could imagine a national politician invoking the Bible to advance his legislation? Or a mainstream movie or cable TV show depicting the guilt and other negative emotional consequences of a woman after she'd undergone an abortion. Or a public day school student assembly that begins with a reading from John chapter 3 and a prayer of blessing in Jesus' name. Or a military chaplain who advises a dying Islamic soldier to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Or a prominent judge who instructs the jury that their verdict may not conflict with Christian principle. Today, each of these actions is inconceivable in our society, and some are flatly illegal. Yet in previous generations, they, or practices akin to them, would have been routine. We're living in an era so alien to Christian culture that even political conservatives today can argue that same-sex marriage is a conservative idea. What have they been smoking? (laughs) We're living in a time during which almost everybody, Christians included, believes that one of the state's obligations is to provide a social safety net for the elderly. Most people accept laws forbidding landlords to discriminate against adulterous couples as immoral. Uh, The fact that there's no longer much dispute about practices like these verifies a new plausibility structure, which which is not even remotely Christian. The emerging generation is so far removed from Christian culture that when they hear accounts of our long lived heritage of Christian culture in Europe and the States and Canada, These accounts sound so strange, even mythical and unreal in the olden times. Such has been the smashing success of the enemies of Christian culture. What caused this ruin? A number of complex factors, actually. At the top of the list, as Dr. Masson already said, is the European Enlightenment, which elevated man's universal rational capacity as the standard as opposed to God's revelation, by which all things must be judged. Then there is actually in Europe the Thirty Years' War, which violently ripped apart the spiritual unity of Christians, which opened the way for secular interpretations of history, of society. Uh, 
And then there's Romanticism, which massive, the massively influential movement that situated the individual and his creativity and feelings and intuition and emotions at the center of the human experience. Later uh, came historicism and Darwinism and the historical critical method and secular democracy and Marxism and modernism and nihilism and more recently postmodernism. And I could spend an hour on each one of those. And I was planning to, but I'm not going to do that because I wouldn't be invited back. Um, Each of them in its own way diluted, undercut, and eventually erased Christian culture. But today I want to draw attention to just just one, just one particular factor, because it has infested the church, including the evangelical church, so pervasively. And it has paved the way for social justice, our conference theme. It's also the single factor that perhaps more than any other renders Christian culture an impossibility. It's not compatible with Christian culture. I'd like to call this the flight to the interior or simply interiorization. To understand what the flight to the interior is and how it demolished Christian culture, we need to go back to its ideational, intellectual fountainhead, uh, Immanuel Kant. Uh, Scott talked about Hume. Can I give a little talk about Kant? Which is sort of tag team. He's, he was the Hume, and I'm talking about Kant, okay? Um, Kant, uh, perhaps the greatest uh, Enlightenment philosopher uh, of all. Kant's epistemology, or theory of knowledge, by his own admission, launched a Copernican revolution in philosophy. Put your thinking caps on, everybody. Think about this. It's very important to understand. Not hard, but you have to think about it. His self-appointed task was to reconcile empiricism, knowledge that arises from our sense perceptions, with rationalism, knowledge that arises within our mind. Now, he came up with an ingenious solution. Our sense impressions are the source of all of our knowledge, but that doesn't mean that they are knowledge per se. The mind has to properly interpret all of this knowledge, all of this sense impression that Hume would have talked about, all of these outside things coming bouncing on us, these facts that are coming and bouncing on our brain. Kant argued that our minds have prearranged categories by which to interpret the sense experience that we encounter. Here's a metaphor. Our experience, sense experience, is the data that we type into the computer. And our minds are the software that make digital sense of it, right? Got that metaphor? Or to employ a more old-fashioned metaphor. Our sense experiences are the cars driving into the mall parking lot, and our mind is the parking spaces. Our mind parks these sense experiences that it encounters. This means that our mind isn't just passive, receiving outside information. It's creative, rearranging all this outside information. It also means that we never encounter the real world, the external world as it is, but only as we interpret it. We could say that for Kant, we don't see the things of the world as they are. We see the things of the world as we are. Kant would say that our knowledge arises not from sense impressions only, nor from our mind only, but from both of them working together. Now, that theory might seem both ingenious and also harmless, but it drove a stake through the heart of Christian culture. How? If the source of all of our knowledge is sense experience, then nothing outside of sense experience can be counted as knowledge. 
This is what Kant believed. His theory denied what we call today metaphysics, anything that can't be verified by our senses. Including whom? Yeah, God. He didn't deny the existence of God. He only denied that humans can know God. God is beyond the realm of human knowledge. This is why he wrote a book entitled Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. He didn't so much want a religion without God. He wanted a religion about a God we can't know anything about. Kant obviously didn't argue that we can't think about God. All of us do that. He only argued that we cannot know God. He divided our basic thoughts into two categories, the phenomenal and the noumenal. By phenomenal, he means that we can know from our senses. The noumenal is the world that we think about beyond our senses. The problem is that our mental categories aren't capable of knowing that noumenal world. Therefore, we can stretch our mental categories designed for the phenomenal world to include the noumenal world. We can stretch our minds, but this isn't actually knowledge, though we do it all the time. In other words, for Kant, we try to fit God into categories that our minds weren't designed to know. Now, simply put, this means that man can't know God or his revelation, if he had any. In the end, this means that all talk about God and his will is just human speculation. That's what maybe smart speculation, maybe cool speculation, maybe helpful speculation, but just speculation. We could as effectively talk about garps and squogs. Just make something up. They do it at the secular universities all the time. So why can't you do it? Insist on it. It's a basic human right. It could be in the Canadian Charter of Human Rights. We can just make things up. In the end, therefore, religion is basically about the best way to account for the human condition without any recourse to God. Kant was a philosophical agnostic, but a practical theist. He wanted to retain Christian standards in society, but without God or his revelation. Friedrich Nietzsche made him pay a heavy philosophical price for this hypocrisy. Nietzsche scoffed at all these philosophers who wanted to get rid of God, but who wanted to preserve his morality. He says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. However, as Kant's ideas gained traction in the academy, and as such ideas always do, subsequently in the wider society. Oh, did did you hear what I just said there? No, you're asleep. I just said something very important. Somebody kind of repeat back to me something. What did I basically say? Exactly. Summarize the right ideas have consequences. All these guys in the academy, who cares what they're saying and all these ideas? Nobody really cares. I'm going to go change my flat tire. Well, the problem is that ideas actually filter down into society and impact all of society, you see. I say it again. As as Kant's ideas gain traction in the academy, and as such ideas always do subsequently in the wider society, man's knowledge began to turn inward. The important thing then was not... The, uh, the external world that God revealed, but the world of the mind by which man interprets or even in time creates knowledge. Man became the great knowledge creator. For Kant and other Enlightenment thinkers, this was a universal knowledge, the knowledge that all enlightened people would agree on, Kant thought. By the time of Nietzsche, however, and postmodernism and the transvaluation of all 
values that uh, Dr. Masson talked about. We know that this idea of a universal agreed-on knowledge really is a naive myth in Enlightenment ways of thinking. In postmodernity, every individual gets to create his own private knowledge. He can reinvent himself. He can even reinvent his own world. It's called your own conceptual universe. I just That just is weird. I'm living on my own little... We used to call people like that insane. I live in a, my own conceptual universe. But now you can be a good academic postmodernist and believe that. This means that the search for God's righteousness, objectively revealed for the universe in his word and in creation, is a fool's errand, according to that way of thinking. The external world is simply a chaos of sense impressions, out of which each of us must make his own personal sense. Okay, now it's easy to understand how this way of thinking influenced theological liberalism, which wanted to reinvent the faith according to human ideas and experience. But I'm more concerned today to deal with conservatism, especially Protestant evangelicalism. The evangelicals didn't, of course, deny revelation, but they were deeply impacted by Kant's divided worlds, even when they didn't know it. Few people describe it as well as Francis Schaeffer did. He had a certain way with words and concepts. In their modified Kantianism, he says, the evangelicals divided their experience into the upper story and the lower story. The upper story is the experience of God and spirituality and prayer and devotion. The lower story is our physical world and its culture, education and economics and politics and technology and science and so forth. This lower story world, it was thought, might be incompatible with God and his word. I mean, hadn't Darwinism called into question the first three chapters of of Genesis? Isn't education neutral, according to which both believers and unbelievers can agree on the basic facts and into which God's revelatory truth shouldn't intrude? Isn't politics to be commandeered by bureaucrats who simply know how to keep society running smoothly? And uh, wouldn't we violate people's rights if we talked about Christian standards for politics? That would violate people's rights. But none of this really matters, according to a number of evangelicals, because real Christianity is lived in the upper story, in one's vertical relationship with God, not in the lower story. And what's going on daily around us in in public, that's another word that's come about, public life, another division, by the way, another dualism, public versus private, by which we separate where God is allowed to govern from where he is not allowed to govern. Now, getting back to our main category, we can speak of the flight to the interior, essentially the same as what Schaefer called the leap into the upper story. That's what he would call it. When things get too tough down here, In the real world, we leap into the upper story, Schaefer would say. It's become an almost immutable tenet of much of modern evangelicalism. Moreover, it's shrouded in an aura of religious superiority. That's what makes it so ironic. The superiority of the Christian faith is how it brings one into a deep, personal, but only vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, What's left almost entirely unaddressed is the question of his global authority. His worldwide jurisdiction. Evangelicals are named after the evangel, the good news, the gospel. We are great commissioned people, right? 
You're Canadians, but you can say right. Right. Okay. Eh? Yes, there we go. But the Great Commission in Matthew 28 commands the early Christians to disciple all nations. The Christian message can't be limited to a junkyard salvage operation, invading a pervasively sinful world with the hope of extracting a salvageable part here and there. The Great Commission is the post-fall version of the cultural mandate. Jesus Christ claimed that all authority in heaven and earth has been bequeathed to him by his Father, and therefore... Since he has all of this power and authority, his followers are to disciple the nations, not just individuals, mind you, but the ethnos, the nations. But the flight to the interior isn't compatible with this Christian commission. It's not so much that they're in conflict with one another. Rather, interiorization takes the Christian commission off the table entirely. The flight to the interior is often reinforced by specific eschatologies, that is, views of the future, that the world is predestined to grow worse and to fight against the growth of evil in the world, to claim the crown rights of Jesus Christ over this world and all of culture, as EICC is doing, is to fight against the will of God. I'd like to submit today that this line of thinking is contra-Christian, no matter what specific eschatology one may embrace. Moreover, this flight to the interior is a profoundly worldly idea. Now that's ironic, right? Because evangelicals often pride themselves in their separation from the world. But I would suggest that the most pernicious form of worldliness isn't manifested in clothing and music and entertainment standards, though that can certainly be true but rather in evangelical minds that are not truly evangelized. Tom Torrance once put it that way. The problem is we have a lot of evangelicals out there who don't have evangelized minds. The world then is given over to Kantian dualism, and God is limited to the upper story. He has nothing relevant to say or do or much little in our world, and quite frankly, should simply be left alone in any cultural and social sense since he leaves us alone. Modern agnostics and secularists believe that Christianity should be limited to at most the family and the church, and its revealed standards have no place in medicine, no place in politics, no place in law, no place in technology, economics, or in the schools, except maybe parochial schools, and only if those schools conform to secular accreditation standards. Remarkably, many Christians agree with secularists, agree with secularists in this Kantian dualism. I find that perplexing. They believe that incorporating biblical standards in these public areas of life is to step beyond our Christian calling and, worse yet, to dart away from genuine devotion to God. And the secularists agree with that. We're supposed to control these things, the secularists say. And the evangelical pietists say, you're right. You're right. Have at it. The idea that Christians could be passionately devoted to God in prayer and in church and in evangelism and also and equally in incorporating Christian standards into areas generally conceived to be public is a possibility they seem not to have thought about or considered. Now this flight to the interior hasn't left the exterior, the public, the lower story vacant 
One of the most pernicious fruits of interiorization has been the gradual occupation of most of society and culture by ideas and forces hostile to Christianity. There's no neutral public square. And the retreat of Christianity into the interior has invited invasion of anti-Christian forces into the exterior. And it's just here that what has come to be called social justice has emerged. Christian culture presupposes objective cultural standards. In the medieval world, the standards were a combination of explicit natural law and implicit biblical law. As I pointed out in the last talk, the Reformation gradually purged natural law and recognized that the Bible should govern all of life. This doesn't mean society was without problems, even some serious problems. But it does mean, and hear this, that there was a recourse. Almost everybody recognized that there was an objective divine truth that must prevail in all areas of life. God's standards, however they were precisely defined and interpreted, were the accepted ethical standards. The flight to the interior meant the society's ethical standards became a jump ball. I don't know what the thing would be in hockey, but whatever it is, a jump ball. Anybody could have at it. A face-off, right? A face-off. Anybody can get it. Man, I'm learning already. (laughs) Whose standards would prevail? With the emergence of deism, these standards returned to natural law, but society became more secular, and then God was dropped out of standards, these standards entirely. And then they would talk about common law, and then everything was, all of this metaphysical talk about God was wiped away. After existentialism in the 19th century, it was thought that man must make up his own ethics, his own morality. And this meant that social standards, like individual standards, must be created, not Discovered, which is what Nietzsche taught. To avoid anarchy, this method meant that a gifted elite must determine social standards. And that's precisely what's happened in Western societies over the last century. This values creation begins in the elite universities, and it invades our law schools, and it eventually, eventually fans out into popular culture. <clears throat> in Christian culture, including in medieval culture, Christian standards were maintained, but I would earlier called by what I would earlier call a civil, earlier called civil society. The church had its role, the state had its role, the family, the guilds, and other institutions each had their own specific standards. Everybody in the society was a member of a number of these institutions concurrently, and this meant that each institution was a check on the other. We saw earlier the case of the church and state being a check on each other, a condition that fostered political liberty. When Christianity was forced to retreat into the interior, these institutions and their divine standards lost their uniqueness. A single institution began to dominate all others in the West, and that institution has been the the state. The state. Perhaps the chief intellectual engine behind this transformation was the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. How many of you have heard of Rousseau? His influence on the West has been incalculable. Rousseau hated civil society. It didn't treat him too well, he thought, and he got his revenge by creating a philosophy that would emasculate, if not entirely abolish it. He basically struck a bargain with 18th century Europe, and it was this. Give me a state big enough and strong enough, and I will use it to emancipate you from all of these arbitrary authorities that you guys don't like, most of you, 
the church, the family, business owners, guild associations, and so on. Rousseau was committed to radical individualism and a radical statism simultaneously. See, we often believe that these two are incompatible, but actually they are bosom friends. Radical individualists want the state to employ its muscles to guarantee their freedom from God's standards, particularly today sexual standards, but also from parental standards and familial standards and educational standards and business standards, particularly as these standards are based on or derived from the Bible. This is why most radical libertines are also fanatical statists. This is also why they tend to support social justice. They want the state to enforce an equality that they don't want to have to earn. However, and therefore, we live in a world of fluctuating and arbitrary and truth be told chaotic standards, standards of justice because of the Christian flight to the interior. We don't want God's standards of justice to prevail in society, so man's depraved standards of justice are prevailing. Did I say justice? I guess I meant injustice. This is a high price to pay for embarrassment at the notion of incorporating God's world into the public square. But this is the price we are paying. And it is a striking characteristic of our secular culture that has drifted so far from its Christian roots and our evangelical churches that have retreated into the interior. So let's conclude by talking about the restoration. This isn't the end of the story. The heart of Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news. The good news is not simply that all who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation will end up in heaven. The good news is that God is presently turning back sin and all of its consequences and will one day abolish them entirely. The good news is not that God is postponing salvation. Think hard about that point because many Christians seem to gloss over it. They believe that the good news is that God has promised them salvation in eternity. I would suggest that's only part of the good news. The good news is that God in Jesus Christ is presently saving not just mankind, but his creation and mankind's entire culture. What is our responsibility as Christians to reestablish that culture? Or better yet, to create a new Christian culture in our present circumstances? There's no single answer to that question. There's no silver bullet to deliver us from our present culturally depraved predicament. Just as there are numerous causes that ruined our heritage of Christian culture, so there are numerous responsibilities in establishing it. Today, however, in the brief time remaining, I'm going to set forth and elaborate on an already available paradigm for cultural reformation. In fact, I believe it's the only distinctively biblical cultural paradigm that's been offered since the ruin of Christian culture. After the Puritans, for example, who did a profound job. It's worked before, albeit briefly, and it will work again. I'm referring to the neo-reformational Dutch theological and philosophical tradition. By this, I mean the heritage in the Netherlands of Abraham Kuyper, you may have heard of him, and Herman Bovink and Herman Duyeveerd. Uh, denote its counterpart in North America with theologians like uh, Cornelius Van Til and Henry Meter and Evan Runner. It's also significantly influenced thinkers like Charles Colson and John M. Frame and R.J. Rashtuni and Francis Schaeffer and 
Joseph Boot, and Scott Masson, and many other prominent cultural reclaimers. This theological tradition is unique, and it should be listened to. I'd like to highlight three aspects of its paradigm of cultural reclamation that pertain to our topic today. Uh, First, I'll call this, as it's often known, as the neo-reformational tradition. The neo-reformational tradition, first, champions the antithesis, the antithesis. Now, to understand the antithesis, we need to know what a worldview is. Now, North American evangelicals have now discovered Christian worldview. Talk about it a lot. Become fashionable. Long before this, Abraham Kuyper understood that Christianity is an entire way of thinking and acting. It's not just something sort of added on on Sunday. The reason... How much time do I have? I've got ten minutes? Okay. The reason that earlier Calvinists didn't talk as much this way is that they didn't need to. They were living in a Christian culture. It was their plausibility structure. To think in any other way simply wasn't an option or even a viable possibility. Kuyper, however, understood what was at stake. He was one of the first to argue that Christians can't simply assume that we share with unbelievers a basic way of thinking and only afterwards find a way together to Christianity. No, Kuyper argued we must begin with Christian convictions or Christian presuppositions. And only if we begin with them will we end up with the right kind of Christianity. This is the antithesis between believing and unbelieving thought. Therefore, unbelieving views of politics, for example, will be radically different from consistently Christian views. As I mentioned earlier, we believe that politics must be founded in God's moral law in the Bible. Unbelievers deny this law, so they find their source of law in experience or tradition, or the majority of the populace, or elites, or the greatest good of the great, greatest number. Obviously, there is an antithesis between the Christian and the non-Christian ways of thinking. And so there's a second point of the neo-reformational paradigm, and that is common grace. Of course, unbelievers don't always think in a distinctively unbelieving way, just as believers don't always think in a distinctively believing way. That is the second distinctive. We're all inconsistent, Christian and non-Christian alike. We're never fully in harmony with our presuppositions. This is a good thing in the case of unbelievers. God restrains unbelievers from being entirely consistent in their thinking. This is called common grace. Common grace. It means that at critical points, Christians can work together with unbelievers precisely because unbelievers are inconsistently unbelieving. That's how we can have continuity in history. And moving on quickly, third, producing this Christian culture that I've talked about is the unique third characteristic. And it's called, what I mentioned earlier, the cultural mandate. In Genesis 1, we read that God created man and woman to steward creation for God's glory. This work that we're supposed to be engaged in assumes the differences between creation or nature and culture. Nature is what God makes, as I said. Culture is what we make. Man's highest potential is achieved when he submits to God and cultivates creation in God's prescribed way in the Bible. Please understand, this cultural mandate isn't somehow separate from or subordinate to personal evangelism. In the post-fall world, the two necessitate and imply one another. The language used in Genesis 1, of course, is dominion. 
Man is called to rule the earth for God's glory. And that is what we, in fact, are called to do. I'd like to conclude today by talking about some very specific ways in which we can be involved in that changing culture. I'm going to mention three of them, and I'll be done. First, abandon any interiorization paradigms. Get over the idea that God is only interested in your private devotion to him. Christianity is not a private devotional hobby. Wherever you are, wherever God's placed you, he's called you to incorporate his standards, his moral law found in his word. This is true whether you're rearing children, I should say, especially if you are rearing children, writing computer code, waiting tables at a restaurant, selling high-end audio products, or teaching nuclear physics. The Bible doesn't profess to offer specifics on all of these topics, but it does provide the worldview and context in which you think and act in each one of them. Second, never be shy or ashamed about the scandal of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The Apostle Paul talked about the scandal of the cross. If you're a Christian, live and talk as a Christian, wherever you are, not simply in your family or in the church. You say, well, well, people might be offended. You know, it has happened before historically that people were offended at Christians. I've heard that. I've heard that somewhere. You say, well, well I might suffer. People might say nasty things about me. That also has happened. You say it might be hard. Yeah, it might be. I don't mean you loudly annoy people with evangelistic techniques and affix gaudy bumper stickers to your car. I mean that in whatever situation God places you, you live as a Christian. You don't don an aura of neutrality when you leave your family or church. Moreover, you don't incorporate some other standard than the Bible. Which is to say, the standard in your church is the same standard outside your church. That's the point everybody needs to understand. It's the same standard. Finally, trust God's promises. Never assume that God must employ the ways and techniques of the world to gain cultural victory. God brings glory to himself by using his own methods and by his own techniques. We all know about Ephesians 6 and the Christian armor, right? Have you read about that? But we might not know that in Isaiah 59, Jehovah describes himself as clothing Messiah with that very armor. And this is why Paul tells the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul had been reading his Old Testament, unlike a lot of evangelical preachers today. No powerful secular politician or influential scholar relies on prayer in order to shape and influence culture in a secular way. This is because they are rank humanists. Don't be like them. They press the power of man. It would be a monumental error to think that we as Christians can employ such God-abandoning methodologies and still bring about a Christian culture. A Christian culture is a culture that relies on the Christian God for strength at every point. And this is why we never need be discouraged. The sovereign God has all things in hand. God is not surprised. God is not looking over the battlements of heaven, as it were, biting his nails over the depravity of Western culture. Think about this. God has survived the fall of man, the universal flood, four ancient empires, communism, and Islam. And I promise you, he will certainly survive the cultural depravity surrounding us today. 
God has a plan, and his plan will not fail. The only question is whether we will be willing participants in that plan. Your calling and mine is expressed in the title of the old hymn, Trust and Obey. And not simply trusting and obeying in our individual lives, but trusting and obeying in all areas of life until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.